the following podcast contains spoilers and graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Criminal Adaptations, the show where we take a look at some of your favorite movies and the true crime stories that inspired them. I'm Remy. I spent over a decade in the film and television industry in Los Angeles, California. And I'm Ashley. I'm a clinical psychologist and forensic evaluator in the state of Oregon. And this week, we will be discussing the 1996 horror movie, Scream, and the true events that inspired the film. Ashley, I know you have seen this movie before. I'm pretty sure we have watched this movie together before. (laughs) What are your thoughts on Scream? So I love Scream. I think it's probably one of my favorite horror movies in general, and it's definitely my favorite slasher flick. It is one of the best horror movies of all time. It's iconic. It's historic. It is an amazing film. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most people that are listening did not realize that this was inspired by actual events. I know I sure didn't. I had no idea myself that this was actually based on a true story. And I'm calling it now, even though this is only our third episode, I think that the true crime story behind this movie is going to be the most brutal crime we will ever cover on the show. That has me very intrigued. Believe it or not, I actually don't know anything, really, uh, behind the true events of this movie. I have heard of the Gainesville Ripper, which I know is the criminal that the Scream story is based upon, but beyond that, I really have no idea what else happened. I don't know what this person did. I don't know anything about them, really, so I'm very excited to get the backstory on all this. I've seen Scream a million times, but I have never really heard the story behind it. Yeah, it is definitely one of those stories that I, being a true crime aficionado, was shocked that I had never heard of before. I have a theory of why it didn't get as much publicity as the Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmers of the world, but I'll save that for later. Wow, you're actually saying he's in that category. Okay, I'm, again, very intrigued. Are you ready to get right into it? Yes, let's do it. All right, and then without further ado, let's talk about Scream. Scream is a 1996 horror film directed by Wes Craven and written by Kevin Williamson. The film stars Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Skeet Ulrich, Matthew Lillard, Rose McGowan, and Drew Barrymore. Scream is the brainchild of screenwriter Kevin Williamson, who came up with the idea after watching a news story about a series of grisly murders and their connection to a serial killer known as the Gainesville Ripper. This would later contribute to Williamson's paranoia when he found one of his own bedroom windows open that same evening. However, this concern quickly turned into inspiration as Williamson proceeded to draft out an 18-page script treatment about a young woman who receives an eerily taunting phone call one night while alone in her home and is later attacked and killed 
by an unnamed masked assailant. He called this short story Scary Movie. And no, I'm not kidding. That was actually the original title for the film. I wonder if that's why they titled the Scary Movie series Scary Movie. I don't know for sure, but I would imagine it has to have some inspiration from the fact that Scream was originally titled Scary Movie, which is a ridiculous title for a movie, if I do say so myself. It goes much better with a spoof of horror movies than an actual horror movie, I think. I mean, it does tell you exactly what you're getting into when you start it. Well, after some time and a few other of Williamson's personal projects being stalled, Williamson turned his focus back to Scary Movie and ended up finishing the entire script in only three days, along with two separate five-page outlines for potential sequels, which would be titled Scary Movie 2 and Scary Movie 3, respectively. (laughs) In June of 1995, Williamson brought the script to his agent, Rob Paris, to put out for sale, which would soon cause a bidding war that would finally be won by Dimension Films, who Williamson believed would produce the movie without significantly changing much of the graphic violence depicted in the screenplay. In fact, upon reading the script, Bob Weinstein, who was the head of Dimension Films at the time, realized that there were nearly 30 pages that had absolutely no murder. So he demanded that Williamson kill off another character somewhere within those 30 horrifically bloodless pages. Do you want to know who he killed? I'm going to guess Rose McGowan. It was the principal, Henry Winkler. Oh, no. Yeah, the Fonz. While writing the script, Williamson felt it was crucial for the audience to learn what had motivated the two murderers into committing these heinous actions. But he also felt it might be just as scary if they had absolutely no motivation at all. In the end, Williamson decided to do both. With the character of Billy Loomis being motivated by his mother's abandonment, while the second killer, Stu Mocker, seems to be killing more for the sheer joy of it, even though he does mockingly chalk it up to peer pressure when questioned about his motivation in the film. Eventual director Wes Craven had actually read the script and was even interested in directing the film before being offered the job by Bob Weinstein. Weinstein felt that Craven's previous work in the horror genre would make him the perfect fit to bring Williamson's script to life. Had he done any other horror movies other than Nightmare on Elm Street before this? Yes, he had. He had done The Hills Have Eyes, the original one, not the remake, which is pretty traumatizing to watch. Yes, the one I told you I walked out on while sobbing. Yes, and he also (laughs) made a B-monster movie called Swamp Thing. I don't know if that even falls in the horror genre, but he had a few other 80s slasher-type films under his belt at this time. Even though he did want to get away from the genre, the genre just kept pulling him back in. Believe it or not, Craven was also a big proponent for the film's original title, Scary Movie, but the Weinsteins would eventually be the ones to finally squash that idea once and for all, and eventually settled on the name Scream after the Michael Jackson song of the same name, even though both Williamson and Craven both considered the new title stupid. Now, have you heard the song Scream by Michael Jackson? No, I actually have not. Okay, well, here's a taste. 
like it. It definitely has the classic Michael Jackson vibe going on for it. Does it make you think of masked serial killers? It does not. It makes me think of Thriller. <laughs> yes. It, uh, it's not a very horrific song by any means, but it is catchy. We were bobbing our heads here in the quote unquote studio. It was catchy. I will give it that. Sony Pictures would later file a lawsuit against Dimension Films, claiming that the title scream infringed on the copyright of Sony's own film, Screamers, which had been released the previous year of 1995, and the case would eventually be settled out of court. When it came to casting, Drew Barrymore was actually the one who was originally signed on to play the lead role of Sidney Prescott. But due to unexpected commitments limiting the actress's schedule, she would later be cast in the much smaller role of victim number one, Casey Becker, and shot all of her scenes in the first five days of production. Nev Campbell was eventually cast in the role of Sidney after Craven saw her in an episode of Party of Five. You've seen Party of Five, haven't you, Ashley? I have not, but man, have I been immersed with random tidbits of that show in the past several weeks. I believe it's on your to-watch list. I need to get to it. She will get to Party of Five one of these days. Courtney Cox would sign on for the role of Gail Weathers because the studio wanted another name actress, and Cox was tired of always being seen as the nice girl from Friends and wanted the chance to finally portray a bitch for a change. (laughs) Eventual Cox husband David Arquette was initially approached for the role of Billy Loomis, but lobbied for the role of Dewey Riley instead, and Craven enjoyed his softer, funnier approach to the character. Skeet Ulrich would later be cast as Billy due to his resemblance to Johnny Depp. Matthew Lillard was asked to audition and was eventually cast as Billy's cohort in crime, Stu Mocker, after being spotted in the hallway by a casting director while he was accompanying his then-girlfriend to an unrelated audition taking place in the same building. Talk about good luck. Yeah, I was just going to say, what luck for him? Roger L. Jackson, who plays the voice of Ghostface, was originally intended to only be used as a placeholder and would be dubbed over during post-production. But later, it was decided that Jackson's voice was just too perfect, and he would go on to voice the character in every one of the film sequels. During production, Jackson was never allowed to meet any of the other actors in order to prevent the other actors from associating Jackson's harmless physical appearance with the menacing voice the actors would interact with on set. Though Jackson was present during filming, he was kept hidden and only ever spoke to the other actors in character through the telephone while on set filming their scenes. So he's not the body of Ghostface, he's just the voice? He is just the voice over the phone. They have various stuntmen that portray the body. I don't think the actors who are revealed to be the killers in any of the movies actually portray Ghostface during those scenes. I believe it's just a series of stuntmen. But now that you know what got us here, are you ready to hear about the film? Yes, let's dive in. Well, let's do it. Our story begins with teenager Casey Becker, played by Drew Barrymore, alone in her secluded house in the middle of nowhere, making popcorn, getting ready to watch a scary movie, when she receives a mysterious phone call, which she answers and hangs up on after realizing it's a wrong number. Moments later, the phone rings again, and she answers again with similar results. 
After a few more minutes, her phone rings yet again, and the caller begins to question Casey about what she's doing and starts asking her about what her favorite scary movies are. The talk is playful and casual at first, until the caller reveals he's watching Casey somewhere and can actually see what she's doing. She hangs up again, but her phone continues to ring until she once again answers. Only this time, the caller has taken on a much more ominous tone and threatens to gut Casey like a fish if she hangs up again and taunts her by ringing her front doorbell. Casey tries intimidating the caller into leaving her alone by claiming her big football player boyfriend, Steve, will be coming home any minute. Unfazed, the caller instructs Casey to turn the back patio lights on, revealing Steve bound and tied to a chair. The only way for Casey to save Steve is to play the caller's sadistic game involving horror movie trivia. She gets the first question right, but is tricked by a technicality on the second. Do you want to know what the question was that tricked her, or do you already know this one? I do not remember it. Who was the killer in Friday the 13th? Do you know the answer? Jason? You would be wrong. That is what Casey said as well. Her answer was Jason, which most would assume to be the correct answer, but the actual answer is Jason's mother, Mrs. Voorhees, who was the killer in the original film, while Jason became the killer in all of the film's sequels. Ah, yes, technicality indeed. The price Casey must pay for answering incorrectly is, unfortunately, her poor boyfriend Steve's life as he is gutted by an unseen assailant. Everyone always thinks Drew Barrymore is the first death in Scream, but it is actually her boyfriend. Yeah, technically Steve is the... Well, actually, later on we'll come to find there is a victim before Steve. Mm. Terrified, Casey cowers in the corner as the caller mockingly laughs at her terror and asks her the final question. But in the end, it doesn't really even matter what the answer is, as a chair comes smashing through the back window. Casey runs through the house, grabbing a knife to protect herself as she slowly sneaks outside, only to be greeted by our story's killer, the one and only Ghostface, who tries to grab Casey, but she manages to make a break for it. In the distance, she sees her parents' car driving up the long road to their house, but is quickly subdued by her attacker and stabbed in the chest with a large hunting knife and strangled while she lays on the ground. In the driveway, just around the corner of the house, her parents are arriving home for the evening. Casey tries calling out to them, but her vocal cords have been crushed and she's too weak to run. As her parents enter their home to find their house in ruins with windows shattered and fires on the stove from burning popcorn, outside and now alone with his victim, the killer lands the final killing stab on Casey. Inside the house, her parents try calling the police, only to hear the dying voice of their daughter as she clutches the home's portable phone before the line finally goes dead. Realizing their daughter must still be close by, the two parents head outside and find their daughter hung by a swing set with her intestines spilling from her body. Casey's mother screams as we cut to black. Next, we meet Sydney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell, typing away at her keyboard when her boyfriend Billy, played by Skeet Ulrich, surprises her by climbing up her bedroom window. Her father comes to her door to see what the commotion was, but she manages to placate her father while he tells his daughter he'll be leaving town for a few days on business. Once gone, Billy reveals himself from his hiding place and begins talking to Sydney about their lack of sexual progression in their relationship. 
since Sydney happens to still be a virgin. The two make out for a bit, but Sydney stops Billy from taking things too far. Billy is frustrated, but seemingly understands her apprehension and leaves Sydney alone for the evening. The next day at Woodsboro High School, Sydney arrives to find the entire campus bustling with police officers and news crews reporting on the murder of Casey Becker. As Sydney takes in the media circus around her, she's greeted by her friend Tatum, played by Rose McGowan, who informs Sydney of the previous night's murders. Throughout the day, students who knew Casey are all called to the principal's office to speak with the local police department. Sydney is interrogated, and it is here we meet Deputy Dewey, played by former WCW heavyweight <laughs> champion David Arquette, and the school's principal, played by Henry Winkler. After school, Sydney, Billy, and Tatum all hang out by the school's water fountain, along with their other friends, Randy, played by Jamie Kennedy, and Tatum's boyfriend, Stu, played by Matthew Lillard. The teens all sit around discussing the murders in graphic detail, and it is revealed that Casey used to date Tatum's current boyfriend, Stu. Back home, Sydney turns on the news to see TV reporter Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox, doing a story on the murders and references the rape and murder of Sydney's mother, which had happened just one year prior. Rattled, Sydney turns off the television and takes a nap on her sofa and is woken up several hours later by Tatum, who calls to tell Sydney she'll be coming over soon. After hanging up with Tatum, the phone rings again almost immediately, only this time Sydney is greeted by the same killer's voice we heard from earlier. Assuming the call is just from her friend Randy, simply trying to play a prank on her, Sydney plays along and continues with the caller's strange conversation until the caller finally reveals that he is not, in fact, Randy. The caller tries intimidating Sydney in a similar vein they did with Casey, but Sydney doesn't seem even remotely shaken and even goes outside to mock the caller's inability to actually see what she's doing. Angered by this, the caller threatens to kill Sydney just like her mother, which causes Sydney to start taking things much more seriously as she goes back inside and locks the doors. Unfortunately for her, Ghostface pops out of one of the hallway closets, having been hiding inside the entire time. The two struggle for a bit until Sydney gains the upper hand by kicking Ghostface in the balls and running upstairs to her bedroom to barricade the door and dial 911 from her computer, only to find that Ghostface has mysteriously vanished. Sydney is then startled by Billy coming up through her bedroom window just as he had earlier. Billy then attempts to comfort Sydney, but Sydney is immediately put on alert at the sight of Billy's cell phone, which just happens to drop to the floor in that exact moment. This was the 90s when owning a cell phone was actually extremely rare. Immediately thinking that Billy could be the caller, who had just threatened to kill her moments ago, she makes a break for it and runs to the front door where she comes face to face with Deputy Dewey holding the infamous ghost face mask in hand. The police then arrest Billy while Tatum brings Sydney down to the police station to answer some questions. At the police station, the police unsuccessfully attempt to get a hold of Sydney's father while Billy is interrogated in the other room, where the police say they will hold him while they check his cell phone records. Outside the police station, Tatum and Sydney become cornered by TV reporter Gail Weathers, who tries to question Sydney, but instead of answers, receives a knuckle sandwich when Sydney cold cocks her. Back at Tatum's, the two girls discuss the night's events until Sydney is interrupted by a phone call that turns out to be from the same threatening voice she heard earlier that evening. Side note. The next day, at breakfast, everyone is having a normal meal consisting of bacon, eggs, cereal, what have you, while Deputy Dewey is having just a single donut on a tiny plate 
for himself. Really playing into that cop stereotype. The prop department had a fun time with Dewey. There is a few other things that I'm going to point out with this character. Just little things they've added to make him seem more childlike and innocent than your average police officer. Back at school, Sydney is once again swarmed by the media and spots Gail sitting in her TV van nearby. Sydney approaches Gail and asks her about her book and if she really thinks that her mother was killed by someone else other than the man convicted and sitting on death row, Cotton Weary played briefly in new scenes by Leif Shriver. Gail confirms to Sydney that she does not think that Cotton was the one who murdered Sydney's mother, which causes Sydney to start doubting her own convictions. Once in school, Sydney runs into Billy in the hallway while trying to avoid one of the many other students who have decided to dress as the Ghostface killer for class that day. Billy tells Sydney that he's innocent, and Sydney believes him having received another call from the killer the previous evening while Billy was still in jail. Billy also tells Sydney that it's been a year since her mother died and it's about time she get over it and they start moving forward in their relationship. <laughs> really sensitive and understanding partner she's got on her hands. I know, right? Needless to say, Sydney is extremely insulted by this and excuses herself from the conversation to go to the women's restroom. While inside one of the stalls, Sydney overhears some of the other girls talking shit about her. After the girls leave, Sydney exits the stall and begins to cry. Her sorrow is only momentary, though, as she is once again struck with terror when she hears a faint whisper and sees the bottom half of a ghost face costume on a pair of legs under one of the stalls just behind her. Just as Ghostface bursts through one of the stalls, Sydney dodges her attacker and runs from the restroom. This girl just cannot catch a break. <laughs> no, she can't. Outside the school... Gail tries flirting with Dewey in order to get an inside scoop on the story. Even though Dewey doesn't give her much new information, he does return the flirtations with Gail. An announcement is made over the school's PA system during this time, stating that all classes have been canceled for the week and a town curfew will be in effect until further notice. Tatum's boyfriend, Stu, decides that this is the perfect opportunity to throw a big party at his place later that evening. I mean, I can get behind that. Meanwhile, in the principal's office, once the remaining students and staff have evacuated, Henry Winkler is murdered by Ghostface. R.I.P. Fonzie. Yeah. Well, we'll see you again in Barry. Down at the police station, while Deputy Dewey enjoys a deliciously pink strawberry ice cream cone, we learn that the killer's cell phone has been traced back to Sydney's father, making him the prime suspect. The chief of police is smoking a cigarette while Deputy Dewey is licking his tiny pink ice cream cone during this scene. Just another example of the prop department getting an A-plus from me. Yeah, didn't even go with, like, a manly flavor, like, I don't know, chocolate, no, but pink, pink. strawberry. It had, to be pink. <laughs> it had to be pink. That night at Stu's house, the party is in full swing as Deputy Dewey drops Tatum and Sydney off to attend the night's festivities while he stays close by in his vehicle to keep an eye on things. Gail and her cameraman also arrive in their TV van, but are immediately met by Dewey, who lets Gail accompany him while he surveys the scene inside. As Dewey and Gail walk through the party, Gail secretly places a hidden camera in the living room in order to capture any potential footage she could use for later. During this, Tatum makes her way out to the garage to fetch Stu a beer. She grabs several bottles, but when she tries to go back inside, the door has been locked. 
She tries exiting out the garage door, but is stopped by Ghostface, who prevents the door from fully opening. At first, Tatum believes this person to be her friend Randy dressed in a costume. What do these people think of Randy? It seems like any time the murderer shows up, every character is like, oh, Randy. (laughs) Yeah, Randy needs a new hobby. Right? They're just assuming that, oh, dressing up as a serial killer. Yeah, that's totally a Randy thing. Tatum soon realizes that this is not Randy when Ghostface grabs her wrist and begins slicing down the side of her arm with his large knife. Breaking free from the killer's grip, Tatum tries in vain to defend herself and attempts to escape through a small doggy door attached to the garage. Which I have never seen a doggy door on a garage Me neither in all (laughs) honesty. There's a lot of factual things that wouldn't make sense in this whole scene, but it is gruesome because Tatum gets stuck halfway through the doggy door and Ghostface sees this as a unique opportunity and proceeds to turn the garage door on, causing it to slowly ascend, crushing and killing Tatum in the process. I also heard Rose McGowan, while on a flight one time, received a picture of her during her moment of death from this movie that someone drew during the flight, and it was apparently very graphic and very detailed. And just a tip to everyone, don't give celebrities personal photos you made of them dying. No, I feel like we got another developing serial killer on our hands. Yeah, it's a little weird. Back inside the party, things seem to be winding down for the evening, with only a few stragglers left behind watching scary movies with Randy and Stu. While Sydney searches for Tatum, she runs into Billy, and the two go upstairs to talk. Once upstairs, Billy apologizes for his behavior, and so does Sydney, and the two end up finally having sex for the first time, and Sydney loses her virginity. Downstairs, Randy, Stu, and a few others are watching the movie Halloween, and Randy lays out the rules of how to successfully survive a horror movie. Rule number one, no sex. Rule number two, no drinking, no drugs. And rule number three, never say, I'll be right back. (laughs) Shortly after the rules have been laid out, Randy answers a phone call informing him that the principal has been murdered and hung from a goalpost at the school's football field. So the remaining party guests decide to leave in order to go check out the crime scene, leaving Randy alone to finish Halloween all by himself. These kids are morbid. Seriously, their big motivation for leaving the party so quickly was they wanted to see the principal's body still hanging there before they took him down. Outside, Dewey gets a call that there's a suspicious vehicle parked nearby, so he and Gail go to investigate and soon realize that the vehicle belongs to Sidney's father. Meanwhile, back inside the house, Billy and Sydney have just finished their lovemaking session and are now getting dressed, but something still seems to be troubling Sydney. This inner turmoil is soon interrupted, though, when Ghostface appears out of nowhere, stabbing Billy repeatedly. The killer chases Sydney through the house, but she manages to escape by jumping from an attic window. She then runs over to Gail's TV van, where Gail's cameraman is watching footage from inside the house. However, Before the cameraman can do anything to help, his throat is quickly slit by a re-emerging ghost face and Sydney once again has to make a run for it. It is during this that Dewey and Gail arrive back at the house and while Dewey goes inside to investigate, Gail returns to the TV van only to find her beloved cameraman horrifically murdered. Gail tries to flee but crashes when trying to avoid Sydney who is attempting to flag the van down for help. 
With nowhere else to go, Sydney returns to the house to try and find Dewey. But by the time she does, Dewey has already been stabbed in the back by Ghostface and collapses in a heap on the front porch. After narrowly avoiding Ghostface yet again, she grabs Dewey's gun, then hears cries from her friends Randy and Stu, who both approach Sydney begging for help, and accusing the other of being the real killer. But Sydney then finds Billy, of all people, staggering through the house, still alive somehow. And Billy convinces Sydney to give him the gun, then shoots Randy, and reveals himself and Stu to be the true killers all along, faking Billy's death earlier that evening. The two killers proceed to corner Sydney and finally reveal their master plan. You see, Stu and Billy were actually the ones to frame Cotton Weary for the rape and murder of Sydney's mother one year prior. So, technically speaking, Sydney's mother is the first ever Ghostface victim. That is a twist I did not remember. Sydney's mother had been having an affair with Billy's father, which led to Billy's parents getting a divorce. Stu then reveals that they have Sydney's father bound and gagged and plan on framing him for all the murders. The boys tell Sydney that they plan on being the only survivors and will tell the police that Sydney's father killed Sydney before turning the gun on himself and taking his own life. In order to add authenticity to their story, the two boys then take turns stabbing one another so that it looks like both of them had narrowly escaped with their lives. The plan hits a speed bump, however, and the gun they plan on framing Sydney's father with ends up in the hands of Gail Weathers. But she is easily subdued when she forgets to turn the safety off. Luckily, this simple distraction gives Sydney just enough time to slip away from the two killers, completely undetected. Realizing that Sydney is now missing, Stu and Billy start to panic, until they're interrupted by a phone call. Billy answers and hears the voice of Sydney using the boy's own voice changer to inform them that she has already called the police and told them everything. Realizing that the jig is finally up, Billy starts tearing the house apart in a futile attempt to try and find Sydney, while Stu, who has lost a lot of blood at this point, begins to cry at the thought of how mad his parents will be. <laughs> yeah, they're probably going to be pretty pissed at you, dude. I must say Matthew Lillard does do a terrifically twisted performance in this movie. <laughs> it's at this point that Sydney gets the drop on Billy and stabs him in the chest repeatedly with the sharp end of an umbrella while dressed in the ghost face costume. Stu then tries lunging at Sydney. Sydney, but Sydney still manages to subdue him and smashes his head with a non-flat screen TV. You know the ones that were as large as an air conditioning back in the 90s? And like 100 pounds. Yeah, it would definitely kill someone if this landed on you. Flat screen, probably not so much. With both killers assumingly dead, Sydney takes a moment to process the night's events, only to suddenly be ambushed again by Billy, who throws Sydney to the floor and starts to strangle her, but is stopped when Gail Weathers returns yet again, shooting him directly in the chest. Sydney, Gail, and Randy, who is also still alive and showed back up somewhere along the way, surround Billy's body and after one last jump scare, shoot Billy directly through the forehead, killing him once and for all. And that's how you kill people in horror movies. In the words of Thanos, you should always go for the head. As the sun begins to rise on a new day, police and paramedics arrive, and we see that Dewey has also survived and is being brought to the hospital as television reporter Gail Weathers goes live on air to tell what would prove to only be the beginning of the horrific story of the Ghostface Killers. And that is Scream. What do you think of Scream, Ashley? How do you feel after hearing the story laid out like that? 
I mean, it's just as great as I remember. It's fun. It's campy. It's full of jump scares. For how brutal some of these murders were, I don't recall it being super gory, which I always appreciate. And I I still hold true that it's one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It is a classic, and it is, I would say, the best in the series, and it will be almost impossible to get rid of that title. It's iconic. It is amazing. The sound, the visuals, the intensity. It's a great movie. I love it, still love it, saw it back in the day, and will probably continue to watch it for years to come. Agreed. After the film was released, Scream received the dreaded NC-17 rating from the MPAA over nine times, forcing Wes Craven to cut more of the graphic blood and gore before finally receiving an R rating. Bob Weinstein chose to release Scream on December 20th, 1996, a date usually reserved for Oscar bait and family films because he believed that horror fans and teenagers had nothing interesting to watch during the holiday season. During the film's opening weekend, the film earned a measly $6 million at the box office. But the following week, earnings continued to increase and would do so for several more weeks until the total U.S. gross topped at just over $100 million. I mean, that makes sense. The time that that was released, it's usually reserved for families that are going to see movies together during the holidays. And this is not one you would want to bring your young children to see. I also believe that this movie is one of the rare instances of word of mouth. People were talking about this movie. They were telling their friends about it. And it took a while to get going. But the strength of the film is what eventually made it a hit. Scream currently has an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 87 reviews with a critical consensus that reads horror icon Wes Craven's subversive deconstruction of the genre is sly, witty, and surprisingly effective as a slasher film itself, even if it's a little too cheeky for some. Once again, the critic consensus pretty much nails it. The film also received an average score of 65 out of 100 based on 25 critics on Metacritic. Scream also received several awards and nominations following its release, including a Saturn Award for Best Actress for Nev Campbell, Best Writing for Kevin Williamson, and Best Horror Film, while receiving nominations for Best Director for Wes Craven and Best Supporting Actor for Skeet Ulrich and Drew Barrymore. But don't feel too bad for Craven missing out on that Saturn Award because he would go on to be awarded the grand prize at the, I'm gonna murder the name of this festival, the Gerardimer Film Festival? I am sorry to anyone who is familiar with this festival and can correct me on what that is actually supposed to be called. Scream would also go on to win Best Movie that year at the 1997 MTV Movie Awards (laughs) and went on to have five sequels with the most recent installment coming out just this past year, actually. Side note, after Scream was released, the sale and use of caller IDs tripled. And as of 2022, Ghostface is the best-selling Halloween costume of all time. Oh, wow. So this movie made an impression that continues to this day. Yes, it did. And we have a new one coming out very soon, or actually it'll probably already be out by the time this is posted. Yes, we haven't seen the new one. I'm sure we'll see it. We've seen all the Scream movies, but we haven't gotten around to it just yet. Unfortunately, in the years following Scream's release, several copycats would become inspired by the film and go on to commit acts of violence 
under the guise of the Ghostface Killer. In January 1998, 16-year-old Mario Padilla and his 14-year-old cousin, Samuel Ramirez, stabbed Mario's mother, Gina Castillo, 45 times, killing her. Jesus. The boys claimed that they were inspired by the film Scream and Scream 2 and confessed to Gina's murder in order to fund a planned killing spree, which would have included purchasing two Ghostface costumes as well as a voice-changing device similar to the one used in the films. While on trial, the judge barred all evidence pertaining to the Scream films and refused all media access. Mario Padilla was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, and Samuel Ramirez was sentenced to 156 years in state prison. So, essentially, life. (laughs) Yes. On January 17, 1999, 13-year-old Ashley Murray was stabbed 18 times before being left for dead by his friends Daniel Gill and Robert Fuller, who were 14 and 15 years old. Murray would survive but suffered a collapsed lung, fractured rib, and hypothermia. His attackers were dubbed the Scream Attackers after it emerged that they had watched the film shortly before the attack and drawings of Ghostface were found amongst their possessions. Both boys were found guilty of attempted murder and given a minimum sentence of six years, but were both released after just three. The victim, who testified against the two boys in court, stated that he believes the film may have influenced the pair in attacking him. Three years seems pretty light for stabbing someone 18 times. I would agree on that. Three is getting off very lightly for something like this. On May 4th, 1999... Following the Columbine High School massacre, the United States Senate Commerce Committee held a hearing centered around Hollywood's targeted marketing of violent films to youths, and the opening scene of Scream, featuring the murder of Drew Barrymore, was shown to the committee as an example of negative media which could potentially be detrimental if viewed by children. On June 3, 2002, a 17-year-old boy whose name cannot be revealed for legal reasons lured his friend, 15-year-old Alice Boupree, out of her parents' house in France and stabbed her 42 times while wearing a ghost face mask. The attacker fled on foot after being spotted by a neighbor, but the victim still managed to somehow give the name of her attacker to the neighbor before tragically passing away from her injuries. Once arrested, the boy told police that he wanted to kill someone to be like the ghost face character from the film Scream. He was sentenced to 22 years. And that is the story of Wes Craven's Scream. What do you think of all that, Ashley? All those copycat killings are so, so sad. And what's even sadder is Congress's focus of it's the movies that did it rather than looking at some other probably more likely causes of severe violence in youths. I completely agree. It seems like they are always trying to find a scapegoat for this sort of thing. I remember after Columbine happened, there was a lot of talk of Marilyn Manson and violent films and who's to blame and this and that. And I I think it's unfair to put the blame of these sort of tragedies on a film or a song or something along those lines. Yeah, I I agree. Because for all these cases... There's a lot more people who have seen Scream and have not murdered people. Totally agree. <laughs> well, that's my side of things. Ashley, do you want to shed some light on what actually happened? 
Yes, let's dive in to the true story behind Wes Craven's scream. Before I dive into the story of the Gainesville Ripper, I want to give it a little nod to my primary source material. This was a book published in 2018 by J.T. Hunter called A Monster of All Time. Our story starts at the University of Florida in Gainesville. In August 1990, it was the largest college in the state with over 30,000 students. In 1990, Money Magazine listed Gainesville as the 13th best place to live in the entire United States, largely due to its low crime rate. Students started making their way to Gainesville a few weeks before classes were scheduled to begin on August 27th, but from Sunday the 26th to Tuesday the 28th, the slain bodies of five co-eds would be discovered. The first two victims were 17-year-old Christina Powell and 18-year-old Sonia Larson. Christina was excited to start her freshman year at the University of Florida and even took summer classes to gain a head start. She was the first in her family to pursue a four-year college degree and had dreams of becoming an architect. During summer classes, she quickly became friends with Sonia and the two decided to live together. Sonia enjoyed playing softball on the flute and she sung in her church choir. She hoped to open a daycare center after she graduated. Christina's parents requested a welfare check after they had not heard from her in three days. Police gained entry into the apartment and discovered the bodies of both women. There was blood everywhere and numerous stab wounds all over their bodies. Sonia had a large area of skin missing from her back and Christina was sexually assaulted. Her nipples were removed and she was posed with her legs spread and her arms extended over her head. There was soap and a bottle of dish detergent between her legs. Marks on both women indicated they were bound, but the bondage instrument was removed from the scene. Except for the blood and bodies, the apartment looked undisturbed. All of the doors were locked, and the deadbolts were still in place. This is sounding more like American Psycho than the killer from Scream so far. It gets worse. The body of 18-year-old Krista Hoyt was found a few hours later. Krista was a popular student who everyone loved, and she had a large collection of teddy bears, which she slept with every night. Oh. I know. I thought that was really cute. I miss my teddy ruckspin. <laughs> she worked as a clerk at the sheriff's office, and her co-workers were concerned when she did not show up for her midnight shift that Sunday night. Law enforcement went to her apartment and quickly noticed that the gate was unlatched and an area of the fence looked disturbed. Inside the apartment, Krista's head was sitting on a bookshelf while her body had deep stab wounds all over her back and torso. Oh my god, this is horrific. Her nipples were removed, skin was missing from her back, and she was cut open from her chest to her pubic bone, exposing her internal organs. So she was gutted. She was gutted. There was also soap between her legs, indicating the killer tried to remove his semen before he left. She also appeared to have been bound, but the ligature was removed from the scene. The assailant gained entry by popping off a latch from her sliding glass door. The next day, 23-year-olds Stacy Pauls and Manny Taboda were found dead inside their shared apartment. Tracy was described as breathtakingly beautiful. In high school, she was a cheerleader, homecoming queen, class president, and voted best all around. Manny was president of the high school drama club and played on the varsity football team. 
he moved in with Tracy because she thought she would be safer if she lived with a male. Neither of these bodies were mutilated quite like the others, but they were stabbed several times and Tracy was sexually assaulted. Unsurprisingly, there was a mass exodus from the campus after the five deaths were reported. So unlike our silly little high schoolers in Scream, these students got out of Dodge. The students who stayed on campus recalled living in a constant state of fear and hypervigilance. Many students were afraid to sleep alone and bought out the city's supply of deadbolts, stun guns, mace, baseball bats, rifles, and shotguns. The rifles and shotguns were purchased to avoid Florida's 48-hour waiting period required to purchase a handgun. So you can get a shotgun quicker than a handgun in Florida? Uh, in 1990, I believe so. You could just go in and buy a shotgun and a rifle, but you had to wait 48 hours if you bought a handgun. As all the victims were brunette, women also started dyeing their hair. Florida immediately put together a special task force, which would grow to be the largest in the state's history. By the end of the investigation, it consisted of 180 officers and cost $6 million. On September 1st, investigators traveled to Shreveport, Louisiana to investigate a triple homicide with similarities to the Gainesville student murders. These murders occurred in early November 1989 and were unsolved. The victims were 55-year-old Tom Grissom, his 24-year-old daughter Julia, and his 8-year-old grandson Sean. Sean died from a single stab wound to his chest, which went completely through his small body. Tom and Julie died from multiple stab wounds. Julia was found nude with bite marks on her chest and posed on her bed with her legs spread and her arms over her head. Nothing of value was missing from the home. But unlike the student murders, there was one piece of tape left on a nightstand and traces of semen left behind. Despite the clear similarities, Shreveport detectives were hesitant to conclude that the murders were all committed by the same person because they spent the past year operating under the assumption that the killer was close to the family. During the course of the investigation, the Florida Special Task Force would travel around the country investigating thousands of leads, hence the six mil price tag. A week after the Shreveport trip, a forensic pathologist identified the knife used for the stabbings. It was a Kabar knife, which was designed for the Marine Corps during World War II. It was the knife of choice for causing, quote-unquote, maximum damage. Remy, describe the knife that you see. The knife I'm looking at here looks much plainer than the one used in Scream. They do look similar, but the knife that was used in the film Scream was a Buck 120, which is a 8-inch hunting knife that is used as the main weapon for Ghostface. Ah, okay. But I'm looking at the photo here. I'd say the knives are very, very similar, but the one from the film is... Dare I say it's a bit more stylish looking. It's a bit shinier. It has. It doesn't look as bare bones and to the point as the actual knife that I'm looking at here, the Kabar knife. Now we're going to flash forward to December 1990 when a psychological profile for the murderer was created. It read as follows. He probably has done break-ins before, maybe just creepy crawly trips where he entered, moved things around, and perhaps removed innocuous objects. 
The whole idea of watching a woman coming in from the outside, invading her privacy, would appear to be a significant part of the ritual and related fantasy system. This guy may have a juvenile record for this type of offense. By this time, two suspects had been identified, but neither of them would turn out to be the killer. However, the task force would receive a tip a month later. The caller said she recalled meeting a strange man in Shreveport around the time of the triple homicide. That suspect was actually serving a life sentence at a nearby prison in Florida and had a tooth removed. A few weeks later, a search warrant for Danny Rowling's DNA was obtained and he was formally named as the prime suspect. So who was Danny Rowling? Well, he was born in Shreveport on May 26, 1954. His mother, Claudia, was only 19 years old and became pregnant two weeks after her marriage to James Rowling. James was not happy about the upcoming addition to his new family and repeatedly abused Claudia throughout her pregnancy. I'm talking shoving her down the stairs and repeatedly choking her. Danny's delivery was a difficult one. The forceps used to pull him out of the birth canal actually ruptured some of the veins in his head, although he would go on to recover from that injury. His brother was born 15 months later. James's abuse did not stop after his children were born. Claudia tried to leave him several times and filed for separation when her sons were toddlers, but she couldn't get herself to go through with the divorce. Danny's childhood was a difficult one. James had a horrible temper, possibly related to seeing his own father murder his mother by slitting her throat when he was young. He was said to rule the house with an iron fist. The boys were not allowed to have friends over or sit on the couch because that spot was reserved solely for James. Several reports indicate he never showed Danny any sort of love or affection. Not only was he verbally abusive, but a neighbor described James as crazy, sick, barbaric, paranoid, abusive, a schizo, a killer, and cruel to animals. This guy was the total package, I guess. Yeah, he was basically the worst person you could imagine. Yeah, he sounds like a complete piece of shit. And Remy, you know this. In my line of work, I talk to people all the time who have survived horrific abuse and trauma. Some of the things Danny's father put him through are the worst I've ever heard. For example, when Danny was 13 or 14 years old, James flew into a rage after Danny didn't mow the lawn the way James liked it. James dragged Danny into the home and kneeled on Danny's chest until he started to turn purple while laughing. He repeatedly beat Danny with the belt, but he did not avoid more sensitive areas like the chest, back, or even Danny's face. Crying would only make the beatings worse. James also kicked the family dog so hard that it died a few days later. Several neighbors or friends of the family reported this abuse, but James was always protected because his past line of work involved him working at the Shreveport Police Department for many years. In addition to this verbal and physical abuse, Danny Rowling was sexually abused by his cousin when he was nine years old and attempted suicide at least once. When he was 14 years old, a friend introduced him to peeping. 
a habit he would grow fond of during subsequent years. So he was a peeping Tom. He was a peeping Danny. (laughs) Danny dropped out of school and joined the Air Force when he was 17 years old. But he was discharged two years later after he failed to obey orders and started drinking and using drugs. The formal reason for the discharge was, quote, an underlying immature personality. He moved back in with his parents, joined the church choir, drove the church bus, and dressed up as the Easter Bunny. His neighbors would later describe him as a loner, childlike, and a bit odd. For example, several times he was observed walking down the street, dressed up like Rambo, wearing a bandana, and complete camouflage attire. That's not a red flag at all. (laughs) On the other hand, they also said he was really nice to kids, and all the neighborhood children loved him, probably because he dressed up as the Easter Bunny and brought them candy on Easter. Or some kids really like Rambo. He married Omatha Halko four months after he met her at church in 1974, and their daughter was born within the year. Omatha would go on to later testify about how Danny's personality drastically changed after the birth of their daughter. He returned to drugs and peeping, which he said he did because of her, quote, frigid, unquote, attitude towards sex. Weirdly, his peeping didn't always seem to have a sexual motive. There were some mornings when he would get up really early and spend hours watching families get ready for their day. I almost find that creepier. So he was just outside watching, not even for any sort of gratification, just watching these people. Yeah, watching the kids get ready for school, the parents get ready for work, all of that stuff, which, yeah, I think that's really creepier. That is very unnerving. He also started leaving home for days to weeks at a time without explanation or notice. After he punched his wife in the face and threatened to shoot her when she confronted him about the peeping in 1977, she took her daughter and left him for good. Danny was served divorce papers in 1979 and started traveling across the southern states while committing numerous robberies, home invasions, and rapes. He even went to prison twice. He would later reference his time at a Mississippi prison as the moment when something inside him changed. While at that prison in the mid to late 1980s, he was put in the worst segregation cell in the entire prison for threatening a cop's son. The cell was cold, dark, infested with roaches and rats, and had a constant coat of raw sewage over the floor. He spent most of his three-year prison sentence in that cell and was only allowed out once a day to take a shower. He claimed that is when he developed an alternate personality he called Gemini. This is taking an unexpected turn. I did not see this coming. <laughs> he moved back in with his parents after he was paroled in July 1988. He dated a few women who described him as childlike, but they didn't notice any violent or odd sexual behavior. He also worked various jobs, but he never stayed at one place for more than a few months. After he recovered from a serious car accident in April 1990, his behavior quickly escalated. Not only did he resume peeping, but he raped two or three more women. After nearly killing his father during a mutually violent feud, he broke into the home of a married couple he met at a restaurant a few weeks prior. 
He knew where they lived because he offered to install a security light for them. After breaking into their home with a gun, he cried and told the couple about the incident with his father and requested money to help him get out of town. They talked to Danny for close to two hours, and he accepted $30, a coat, and some food before he left. He would continue to commit robberies, burglaries, and rapes while making his way to Gainesville. He arrived there in mid-August 1990. Danny checked out of a hotel and set up a campsite in the woods on August 23, 1990. That day, he also saw The Exorcist 3 in theaters, which depicts a demon named Gemini. We tried to watch this movie the other day, and it was terrible. Yeah, we made it about 15, 20 <laughs> minutes into this movie. It's, it's not a very good film. Not at all. The day after... He robbed a bank on August 27th. An officer followed him into the woods. Although Danny got away, his campsite was found. At the campsite, detectives found a bag of dye-stained money, a handgun, various pieces of jewelry, a ski mask, gloves, and a cassette player with a tape inside. During the next week, Danny continued to break into several homes. On one night... He spent the night eating Chinese food and conversing with a woman he randomly met at a park. He also robbed at least two more grocery stores. He was finally apprehended after a grocery store robbery on September 7th. He pled guilty a week or two later and was sentenced to life in prison under Florida's habitual offender law. So because, you know, kind of like the three-strike rule that California has. Good riddance. Now... Let's flash forward again to March 1991. Remember, police officers were able to obtain his DNA, and it was matched to semen found at one of the crime scenes. Officers also matched fibers from the ski mask found at his campsite to those found on that single piece of duct tape that was left behind at the scene of the triple homicide in Shreveport. A screwdriver found at his campsite also matched tool marks found on the door of at least one of the apartments from the Gainesville murders. Between May and June 1991, five forensic experts evaluated Rowling to determine if he was competent to stand trial. Last week, we dived in a little bit to what it means to plead insanity. Competency to stand trial is a little different. It doesn't focus on what a person's mental state was at the time of the crime, Rather, it focuses on a person's present abilities, and the assessment involves determining whether the person is able to understand the legal proceedings against them and work with their attorney while developing a defense. Unlike last week's case, these evaluations seem to have been pretty legit. Rowling was mostly diagnosed with antisocial and borderline personality disorder, and there was also a diagnosis of schizotypal personality disorder. I have not heard that one before. Yeah, antisocial and borderline personality disorder are probably the two most well-known. They really involve unstable and impulsive affects and behavior. Schizotypal is a little bit different. People with this personality disorder are really uncomfortable with social interactions And have distorted views of reality, often involving superstitions and odd behavior, but it doesn't quite rise to the severity of being considered a psychotic disorder. 
one evaluator did think that Danny had schizophrenia. During that evaluation, Danny spoke about a night when he saw a demon, black smoke pouring inside his house, and different faces and forms that emerged from the smoke. Despite the schizophrenia diagnosis, the judge determined that Danny was competent to stand trial. Remember, these competency hearings were for robbery convictions. He had not yet been charged with the Gainesville murders. By October 1991, he was sentenced to four more life sentences for his string of robberies. And finally, in November, he was indicted for the Gainesville murders. So when I say he was indicted... Essentially, a grand jury believed that there was enough evidence for the district attorney to move forward with prosecution. Grand juries are pretty different from trial juries. First off, there's more people in grand juries than just the typical 6 to 12. It's also pretty easy to obtain an indictment from a grand jury because they don't need to think that a person committed a crime beyond a reasonable doubt. They basically just have to agree that there's some evidence that could prove that the person did do this. So most grand jury indictments do result in permission for the prosecution to move forward. Danny was convicted of federal bank robbery in May 1992. When given the opportunity to address the court, he broke into a song about Jesus for several minutes. He remained in a prison near Gainesville while awaiting trial for the five student murders. It is here where he meets former death row inmate Bobby Lewis in June 1992. Lewis, who had his sentence converted to life in prison, quickly devised a plan. His plan was to befriend Danny and coax a confession out of him, which he would use to negotiate a sentence reduction, much like the film and story Blackbird. Bobby also wanted to convince Danny to sign an agreement giving a female pen pal, Sandra London, exclusive rights to his own life story. Sandra was ecstatic about this plan as she aspired to be a true crime author. By the end of the month, Danny Rowling had not only given Sandra exclusive access to his life story, but he also offered to co-write a biography with her. He had said he had two motivations for offering up these interviews. One, he wanted to sell his story to help his daughter financially. And two, he just enjoyed all the media attention he was getting. Unlike the show Blackbird, it only took one month for Danny Rowling to disclose enough incriminating information to Bobby Lewis for Bobby to reveal his plan to prison officials. While Bobby Lewis continued to grow closer to Danny, he also started to actually like and feel sorry for the guy. In January 1993, Danny agreed to talk to police about the murders, but only through Lewis. Danny decided to confess this way because he wanted to come clean, but he also wanted to help Lewis in the process because he was the only person who ever showed him any kindness in prison. During an initial interview, Lewis shared detailed information about all of the murders, including the triple homicide in Shreveport. Danny had also drawn a map of where he disposed of the Kabar knife. Although Lewis did not think Danny was remorseful because he boasted about how sharp the knife was, he still felt empathy for him. 
Danny agreed to an in-person interview by the end of the month, but he demanded that Lewis act as his mouthpiece. And I mean this literally. He wanted the officers to ask Lewis a question. Lewis would then ask the same exact question to Danny. Danny would respond to Lewis, and Lewis would then relay that information back to the officers. Sort of like a game of telephone. Exactly, like a game of telephone. Obviously, this format was problematic, so they reached a compromise. Officers would ask Lewis a question, Lewis would answer, and then they would ask Danny if that information was correct. Danny would either confirm it or occasionally clarify. Through this process, he confessed to all five of the Gainesville student murders. After he confessed to the murders of Tracy and Manny, he said he just disposed of the knife and his gloves and decided he was done killing. When asked about his motive, he said he was compelled to commit the crimes by an uncontrollable force that took over his mind and body. He also developed different personalities, with Gemini being the one who would have been present at the murders. He said Gemini developed while he was in that sewage and rat-infested prison in Mississippi. And even though he could keep Gemini at bay during the day, he couldn't contain him at night. Danny grew even closer to Sandra London during the next few months. The relationship was not only professional, as she became his personal representative and spokesperson, but personal as well. In fact, London suggested that they get married. Now, did she propose marriage because she actually cared about Danny? Or... Was it because she was now banned from the prison, which made working on her book a bit more challenging? I will let you, dear listeners, be the judge. I wonder. Yeah, it's a real (laughs) head-scratcher. During a September 1993 resentencing hearing for one of the robberies, Danny Rowling publicly expressed his love for London and loudly sang a love song to her for several minutes. He likes to sing. He does like to sing. There's more singing. He's a songster. (laughs) Before the murder trial started, he was again evaluated by several forensic psychologists and psychiatrists. Again, most diagnosed him with antisocial and borderline personality disorder. One of them talked about some strange behavior Rowling displayed during the interview. After he was asked about the murders, Danny Rowling began sweating and was agitated and nervous that Gemini would come out. At one point, he put his head on the table and said, I can't do it. Don't. Don't ask me about that now. I'm afraid he's going to be here. It's him. I can't be sure he won't come out. One psychologist also diagnosed Rowling with something called dissociative feature of possession syndrome, which I'm pretty sure was never a formal diagnosis in the DSM, the book that contains all of the mental health diagnoses. But regardless, she said that that diagnosis was given because Danny Rowling believed that different personalities possessed him and controlled him at various times. Later, another psychologist would come forward. This psychologist was one of the ones who evaluated Danny for one of the robberies in June 1991. After Danny Rowling clarified that anything he said was protected under doctor-patient confidentiality laws, Danny sat 
for hours and confessed to all five of the student murders. But confidentiality laws prevented the psychologist from saying anything. So most psychology confidentiality laws allow a practitioner to disclose information that is told to them if it involves future threat of harm, not past. So because these crimes had already been committed and Danny was in prison at the time, there really was no impending threat or identifiable victims. So the psychologist was professionally bound from saying anything, which he said weighed heavily on him. That psychologist diagnosed Danny with borderline personality disorder and a dissociative disorder because Danny thought he was controlled by the spirit named Gemini. With the trial for the Gainesville student murders finally set to start in February 1994, so over three years after the crimes, 240 journalists obtained credentials to cover the trial. At this point, this case had gotten more publicity and more airtime than Ted Bundy. How have I never heard of this before? So here's my hypothesis. The day before the trial was set to begin, Danny decided he wanted to spare the families from hearing the gruesome details about the murder of their children, so he pled guilty to all five counts. My hypothesis is that because he didn't go to trial, all of that publicity that would have come from the trial never occurred. That makes sense. During his sentencing hearing in March 1994... Prosecutors described Rawling as a careful hunter who meticulously planned the five murders. They described the murders in detail and showed gruesome photographs of each crime scene and victim. So Danny's attempt to spare the families was in vain. They also played his taped confession. And in addition to sharing specific details about each murder... Danny also spoke about his different personalities and how he wished he could be a better person. Another inmate testified that Danny said he wanted to, quote, evoke terror, unquote, through these acts. But he also said he couldn't contain Gemini when the spirit took over his body at night. The last key piece of evidence presented by the prosecution was the recorded cassette tape found at Danny's campsite. The tape was Danny's voice reading short messages to his parents and brother, followed by him singing 11 different songs. That is a lot of singing for a murderer. (laughs) The last line of the tape, which was thought to have been recorded only a few hours before the first two women, Christina Powell and Sonia Larson, were murdered, was this. Well, I'm going to sign off for a little bit. I got something I got to do. After 11 days of testimony, Danny Rowling was sentenced to death. This next part is incredibly disturbing to me. Photographs of the murders were made available at the courthouse, and people could schedule 15-minute sessions to look at them. For the first few days, the line stretched blocks for people to come and view the mutilated bodies of these five co-eds. Obviously, this outraged the family members. Why was this allowed? (sighs) It's like a public access type thing. 
And the judge basically said he couldn't restrict allowing some access to the photos. So having them only at the courthouse and only having people able to look at them for 15 minutes was like the best compromise he could come to. But I agree. I mean, these are women that are naked and mutilated and cut open in some cases, headless in one case. It's just why does this need to be even out in the universe? Agreed. I'm not even going to look up the photos. I would sure hope not. Despite his death sentence, it would be another 12 years before Danny Rowling was executed. He filed numerous appeals. Two of the primary claims he made in his appeal were one, that he should have been granted a change of venue for the sentencing hearing, and two, the death penalty was cruel and unusual. This obviously, again, upset many of the family members of the victims because, I mean, I don't really need to say why. After Rowling and London published their book, The Making of a Serial Killer, in December 1997, Florida sued Sandra London. They said that there was a statute which restricted people from profiting off crimes. Three weeks later, the judge ruled in the state's favor. They said that the state could seize all profits from the book and ordered London to immediately transfer $15,000 into a crime victim's compensation fund. Got married for nothing. Yep. Well, I don't think they ever actually did go through with the marriage. I think that was just what she had proposed to try to get back in but i don't uh, think they went through with that okay on the 10th anniversary of the student murders five palm trees were planted in a median with a nameplate on each one a mural that was also made shortly after the murders is also still present to this day in 2000 danny rowling starts submitting letters and artwork to a website which features that kind of stuff from serial killers because americans are fascinated with this kind of crap from 2000 to 2005, Danny Rowling had about yearly fights with other inmates on the yard, which he seemed to instigate. But otherwise, he was pretty quiet. He spent most of his time reading and watching TV. And finally, on October 25th, 2006, over 16 years after he committed his brutal murders, he was put to death by lethal injection. His final meal which I think sounds delicious, consisted of lobster tail, butterfly shrimp, a baked potato, a piece of strawberry cheesecake, and a sweet tea. That does sound nice. It does sound nice. When asked if he had any final words, he sang a religious song for three minutes. Gotta get one last song in. Uh-huh. So, if you remember, he was never charged with that triple homicide that had occurred in 1989. But... Right before he died, he slipped a letter to a reverend, which contained a full confession. Later, two scholarships were created, both honoring victims of the Gainesville Ripper. The scholarships have provided more than 300 students nearly half a million dollars in financial awards at the University of Florida. And that is the true story behind Wes Craven's 1996 movie Scream. Remy, what do you think? I don't think that the stories have very much in common at all, really. I think the true story is more horrific than the Scream story. 
this person was a straight-up sadistic serial killer, chopping body parts up, and it's much more than the ghost face killer in the movie usually does. I mean, the ghost face killer guts his victims, so that is similar to Danny, but beyond that, I think there was an extra layer of torture and especially much more of a tragic backstory with the real killer, Danny, Mm -hmm. than there was with either Stu or Billy or probably many of the other people that took up the ghost face mantle. And it's a much more tragic tale than than the Scream movies are, in my opinion. Yeah, he went through a little more than just parents divorcing. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't peer pressure, that's for sure. So I have thought about this, and I think there are a few similarities. Okay, first, obviously, the knives, even though they're not identical, they are similar. Second, the slangs of the co-eds. In this case, college students in the movie franchise, high school students. And there was a football player. And there was a football player. I also see similarities between Sandra London and the initial Gale Weathers. They are both kind of really wanting to use these murders to enhance their own careers. By any means necessary to get the story. Exactly. So I definitely see similarities there. In the first Scream, there are two murderers, but in this case, there's only one. However, I see two kind of hypotheses for this. One is that you could argue that Danny Rowling, if he was to be believed, also had two distinct personalities. One, the Danny Rowling, that a lot of people actually described, while immature for sure, not someone that they would ever think would have gone and done these gruesome things. Also, something that I left out was there was another person who the police tried to indict for these murders, along with Rowling. They were convinced they were involved together but they failed to secure an indictment. It's a really tragic story. Essentially, this young kid, I think he was like in his late teens, early 20s, was in a manic episode. He suffered from bipolar disorder, and he was kind of around the scenes acting super manic and crazy, and police just kind of latched onto him. They ended up arresting him, interrogating him, and he confessed. However, he was interrogated for 30 hours while he is clearly in a manic state and law enforcement repeatedly refused or ignored his request when he asked for his lithium medication. So it's it's really, really sad. He basically got railroaded by the system and would eventually go on to be able to obtain a degree and live a full life. But the way that the cops really stuck it to this kid is is tragic so you could see the similarities between the two there but i prefer the gemini danny rolling thing i am surprised that he's not known as the gemini killer instead of the gainesville ripper yeah i mean i guess the you have to think of the name before you catch the guy yeah it seemed like gemini was (laughs) the name he gave himself Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, dissociative identity disorder is probably the most controversial mental health diagnoses out there. And so 
going with something more palatable, like the Gainesville Ripper, probably seemed preferable. For whatever reason, I'm wondering more than the previous two films that we went over, what Danny would have thought of Scream. The Scream movies are without a doubt probably the most successful film series that we're covering here. And I know they wouldn't show him these films, obviously, but he must have been aware of Scream and the franchise. And it makes me wonder if he ever even really knew that it was based on him because the stories are so loosely connected. Yeah, that's a really good point because he would have been alive for several of the films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was... You said uh, 2006? That's a a decade Mm -hmm. after the first Scream came out. And I believe the first trilogy, at least, had come out during that time. And it just makes me wonder if he was even aware that those films were inspired by him. My guess would be he would be quite a fan of having that inspiration. Well, I think that we've come to that time. I think it's time for our juries, you and I to give our final verdicts on Scream. And just in case you haven't listened to the other episodes, I'll give a quick rundown. For these films, we have a rating system of guilty, meaning the film was not accurate at all to the true life events that they're based on. Mistrial, meaning they got some of the stuff right, but not everything. And not guilty, meaning... They got all the details right. It is a accurate portrayal. It is A plus as far as details, accuracy, and research go. I will ask you first, Ashley, what is your verdict on Scream? I mean, obviously not guilty. Just kidding. This is obviously very guilty. It's inspired by, it's very loose. You know, like I said earlier, I talked about some of the similarities I've seen, but it is, I mean, this is one that we had no idea was inspired by anything. And I think most people would share the same sentiment. Yeah, I believe this is the movie that we were the most surprised to find out it was based on a true story or inspired by a true story. Yeah. The previous films that we've done here, those films have dates usually, they have a title card, they have more information given as far as locations, times, dates, names, things of that nature. And none of that was in Scream, which makes me also side with you and rate Scream guilty. This movie is an entertaining slasher flick, but it is not something that I feel is an accurate portrayal of the horrific events that Ashley went over during this episode. I'm actually surprised that there hasn't been some other film made about the Gainesville Ripper that's perhaps a little bit more historically accurate but if Scream is all we get I'm gonna say I'm happy with that I like Scream and I think I'm allowed to say I had a fun time watching Scream because of how loosely it is based in reality yeah I think if there was a movie that came out about this one it would be 
probably difficult to get some backing because of how gruesome these crimes were. And it would be extremely offensive if there was any sort of humor involved at all. This is serious. This is horrific. And there's nothing that should be made light about it. Agreed. The killer in Scream is a bit of a slapstick goofball at times. He's constantly falling. He's constantly getting thrown around. He gets beaten up a lot. And it adds an air of levity to a lot of the scenes in this movie in which people die. And that is not something that I would ever feel is appropriate to include in a story like this, the true life story. Agreed. Well, that is all we have for you today, everyone. Please join us next week when we will be taking a break from murder. Thank God. And we will be talking about the movie starring Hugh Jackman called Bad Education about embezzlement. I am relieved we are going to be taking a break from blood and guts and focusing on something completely different. Yes, we are trying to have a bit of variety in our true crime. And believe it or not, some true crime just involves embezzlement or bank robberies or other things that are not quite as horrific. And I am relieved that we will be focusing on a simple story of a principal and his embezzlements. If you like our show, please, please rate, review, and subscribe. This will really help us get the word out. And we look forward to talking with you all next week. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.